So you have found the podcast of Trustler Mennonite Church. And this week, like every week, we replay the sermon from our Sunday morning service. And we do this so that anyone who might have missed the sermon can catch up later. We want to especially thank those of you who missed our sermon because you were working with our youngest children during the service time. This sermon was from June 4th, 2023, and the text was Hebrews 9, 23 through 28. I was, I was deciding, I, I want to start by talking about the Day of Atonement. I, we're in Hebrews, I know, but I want to start with going back to Leviticus and talking about the Day of Atonement. But then when I started thinking about that, I thought, well, maybe sometimes, sometimes preachers use words that we don't ever use in our normal lives, and we don't know what they mean. So the first is, what does atonement mean? I'm going to talk about a day of atonement. The dictionary definition had, had two that seemed relevant for our discussion. The one was just reparation for an offense or injury, and the other was more of a churchy context, reconciliation of God and humankind through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. And actually, we're looking more at the first one when I talk about the Day of Atonement than the second. The second, because, of course, the Day of Atonement was Old Testament prior to Jesus. So it's based on the word atone, which means to make amends or reconcile. So when in Leviticus we talk about the Day of Atonement, it's a day of reconciliation, a day or a ceremony that God prescribed for the people of Israel so that they could be reconciled to him. A day of atonement. And so I want to sort of summarize what happens on that day, but, but the, the account in Leviticus starts with a verse that gives context for this day of atonement. And it, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of Aaron's two sons who died after they entered the Lord's presence and burned the wrong kind of fire before him. This is described in Leviticus 16. I mean, in, in this, Leviticus 10 has this story of these two sons. We're in Leviticus 16, which makes reference to that just in passing to set it up. And you can go back and read the story if you want. But the context seems to be these guys tried to enter God's presence to worship God in the wrong way. They died. Moral of the story, don't approach God the wrong way. But verse 2 onward, then, is God's instructions of how somebody could approach him, how somebody could be in his presence and live and survive. And the whole point of being in his presence was to bring reconciliation between God and his people. So this was for only for the high priest. This, only the high priest could actually enter, and only once in a while, and he was doing it on behalf of of the people. So Moses' two sons did it the wrong way. Here's the instructions for doing it the right way. That seems to be the way this chapter is set up. The priest needed certain things. This is going to be a, a summary. You can read the whole thing want if you yourself if you want. The priest needed certain things. A bowl full of burning coals, and he needed a bull, and he needed two goats. So first the priest took this bowl of smoking coals, he put some incense on top of it, and then he would enter the most holy place. Now, first some, some I'm going to put some pictures up. I wanted a diagram in my mind. I like to see pictures. So I don't have a picture of the tabernacle. Unfortunately, um, they never took any photographs of it. But Mark and Joyce did give us a paper model that we were supposed to use with the youth group at some point. And so a couple weeks ago was when we actually broke it out. 
And so the youth put together this model and I took some photographs of it and they did as well. So I wish we had the real thing, but we don't. It'd be rather tatty by now, probably anyway. But this was the tabernacle, a boundary wall made of cloth. And then of course there was a tent in the minute, there was, in the middle of it there was a bowl, there was a place in the center for sacrifices. And if you were to remove that tent and look inside, you would see that there are two rooms with inside that tent. The front, there's a lampstand, there's an incense place, and there's a table where there's some bread set out. And in the back, you can see there's a room. If we zoom in on that room in the back, we find the Ark of the Covenant and apparently still the two dead sons of Moses laying there. Um, not of Moses, of Aaron laying there. So... That gives you a picture of what we're talking about here. A a reminder of of how this looks if you haven't seen a diagram lately. But back to our point. Aaron, the high priest, he was going to take this smoking bowl of incense and he was going to walk back into that most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. And it seems to me that the whole point is that the smoky aroma would provide a kind of a screen or some, you can read it yourself, some way of protecting this priest from God's presence so that he would not look upon God's presence directly. And and of course, God, God cannot be contained in a tent or in one room of a tent. I think maybe a picture in your mind is this, this place contained God's footstool. This was not God's fullness, his whole presence in there, but there was some presence of God in there. Nobody ever went in there except this one time, and the first entry had to be with this bowl of smoky incense that would sort of provide a shield from God's presence. So then afterward, the priest leaves this holy place, and he sacrifices the bull. He collects some of the bull's blood. The priest then takes some of this blood back into that holiest of place and sprinkles it on the cover of the ark. This blood would bring purification for the priest himself. And I know that some couple weeks ago we talked about how blood brings purification. If you, that was our passage. If you want, you can ask me later and I'll give you my very limited understanding. But blood brings purification. The blood of this bull would purify the priest of his, of his sins. So now that the priest was clean through the sprinkling of this blood, the final step was to remove the impurity of the whole of the people, the entire community. And so he would leave this holiest place. He would return out, and this is where the two goats come in. He would select one of these goats. He would sacrifice it much like the bull was sacrificed, collect the blood, go back into the holiest place a third time with some of the goat's blood and sprinkle it there on the ark and then he would sprinkle it in other places throughout the tabernacle. And one, one author that I was reading described it as if the priest is starting in the middle, sprinkling this blood to bring purity, and then kind of moving out throughout the area of the tabernacle, extending the purity out from the center, pushing the sin and the guilt away. And now then the priest takes the other goat, the goat that's still alive, and he doesn't kill it. Instead, the priest lays his hands on this goat and he confesses all of the sins and wickedness of the people while he has his hands on the guilt. And I'm assuming this must have taken a very long time. The mental picture I get is that all of that sins and the wickedness of the people were pushed out of the tabernacle, sort of symbolically, of course, collected by the priest, placed on the goat, 
And then what? Maybe you remember the goat is sent away into the wilderness alive. I assume it eventually would die, but it's not sacrificed. It's not slaughtered. It's simply rejected and sent away, and it leaves carrying the sins of the people far far away from them. This was done once a year. At no other time could a person approach God's presence and enter into that holiest place. But every single year this was needed. This would symbolically cleanse the people of their sins that they had committed over that previous year's period. And I know it feels to us like a kind of a strange ritual. How did this bring any kind of purity to the people? We're going through Hebrews right now, and if you remember, we'll... We, um, Talked a little bit how these were shadows of what's going on. This did not truly bring purification. That's another part of what the author of Hebrews is writing about. But it was what God prescribed. It was an annual reminder of the brokenness of the people and of the community as a whole. It was preparing for what God was going to have to do someday to bring the true, complete, and final purity and cleanliness from sin. And I'm really glad we don't have to do this anymore. But it occurs to me, sometimes I think we forget just how bad our sins are. And so when God gave this annual day of atonement to the people, it would remind them of their brokenness. It would also provide a way to deal with the brokenness. But they would see this this animal getting slaughtered. They would see the blood. They would see this other animal sent out into the wilderness. And I wonder if it would remind them of the gravity of sin in a way that we maybe sometimes forget today. But I'm very glad that we don't have to go through that anymore. That's the backstory. That's what the author of Hebrews had in mind as he wrote our passage for today. I wanted to go back and read that. I don't know if it was useful for you or not, but keep it in your mind. We're going through the book of Hebrews. We're in the part of Hebrews in which the author is talking about Jesus as our high priest, the greatest of all high priests, the priest of a new and better covenant that changes things. Two weeks ago, we talked about how the blood of Jesus brings purity. The blood of the animals couldn't truly bring purity. It was looking forward to the time when Jesus' blood would be shed. And then last week, we talked about how Jesus made it possible for us to receive our inheritance, and our inheritance is life eternal with God in his city. Then this week, we talk about how Jesus' death on the cross did this all once for all time. So with that, let's go through. I'm going to start actually one verse back from where we officially start today, and I want to read this passage and look at it and then talk about what it means for us. In fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That's why the tabernacle and everything in it, which were copies of the things in heaven, had to be purified by the blood of animals. So that's where we talked about the Day of Atonement, in which everything was purified with this blood. But the real things in heaven had to be purified with far better sacrifices than the blood of animals. And we've talked already in other, other weeks about how this was the blood of Jesus. For Christ did not enter into a holy place made by human hands. That's the tabernacle built to God's specifications, but built by people. Christ did not enter that place, which was only a copy of the true one in heaven. He entered into heaven itself to appear now before God on our behalf. He did not enter into heaven himself again and again, like the high priest here on earth, who enters the most holy place year after year with the blood of an animal. And this 
This is the point that I am going to focus on today, this idea that the, high, the Day of Atonement came every single year, and the high priest had to go every single year to offer the sacrifices, to cleanse the temple, to cleanse the people. Jesus was not like that. He goes on and says, Had it been necessary, Christ would have had to die again and again, ever since the world began. But now, once for all time, he has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. And then in the end, 27 and 28, And just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment, so also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. So, this is our passage for today. Jesus died once for all time. That's the point that I am focusing on, the point that stood out to me, and I think maybe the center of the points here in this particular little piece. So what does this mean for us? Well, I, I was reminded of a story. I, I heard, I kind of think I know, remember who told it, but I don't remember for sure. He was speaking at a, an event, but I'll leave it anonymous. He was telling about the time when he was a young man and he became a Christian. Upper teens, I believe. He was attending some church meetings. And for the very first time, the message of Jesus resonated in his heart, and he began to understand. He went forward at the end of the service. He prayed in front of the church. He talked to the pastor for a while. He committed to following Jesus with his life from that day forward. But then the next day rolled around. I believe they were like revival meetings. He said the next day rolled around. He was at the church again for the next service. And he went forward again at the end of that service because he really did want to follow Jesus. But he realized that even in just that one day, he had failed. He hadn't been able to live as he knew he ought to live. He went forward to repent, to ask Jesus to forgive him again. And maybe you can see where the story is heading. He went forward again and again, every service, because he knew he wasn't living good enough. He knew that he was not able to meet God's standard. And eventually, eventually, the pastor sort of pulled him aside for an additional conversation. And he said, Jesus died for your sins. You've accepted Jesus as your Savior. You've been purified and cleansed, and it's once for all time. You don't have to keep coming forward every single Sunday. You see, under the Old Covenant, every year they celebrated that Day of Atonement. It was a continual reminder of God's forgiveness, certainly, but it was also a continual reminder of their need for that forgiveness. No matter how often the priest purified the temple, or no matter how often the sins were sent out into the wilderness on that goat, the people never were truly, fully purified. They continued to be imperfect. And I think we, like that man when he was young, I think we get that. If we've ever actually tried with all of our being to live honorably and right, we realize that we fail. We will not be able to do it. And we might end up like that man and feeling like we've got to go to church and repent one more time because we still are not there yet. But our passage for today can bring a lot of peace in this situation, I think. Jesus' death on the cross dealt with all sin for all time, once forever. And there's a lot of peace and a lot of freedom Once we realize that if we have repented of our sins and turned toward Jesus, trusted that he alone can deal with our sin, then he has done so. Our relationship with God is set. 
once for all time, and we can be confident of that. So this man in the story, as he was telling it, he, he, he was never perfect. He never achieved perfection, of course, not never. He had to confess sin. He did have to try to restore broken relationships when he caused harm. He had to try to correct injustices. But his relationship with God was and would always be solid. He didn't have to keep going forward. He didn't have to offer animal sacrifices like the priest. Jesus took care of all of this once for all time. And in a sense, that's, that's the message for today. That's the center, that's the part of this passage that I felt was, was important to bring out and to emphasize. And it's a really beautiful text that I think can bring assurance, confidence. But there was this part of me as I was thinking about it that I became slightly just a little bit concerned. You see, for the last several weeks, we've been talking about how Jesus is our high priest of this new covenant, and we've been thinking about these kind of aspects of it, and we talked about how Jesus washes away our sins, he purifies us, he cleans us up, he makes us fit for God's presence. It's amazing to think about, but if I'm not careful, it's possible that it'll make it sound like, well, Jesus did it, it's on the cross, it's over, it's taken care of, I can just go on with life and do whatever I want to do. I don't have to worry about it anymore. And there's a little bit of truth there, but it's kind of a half-truth, and that makes it a little bit dangerous. The author of Hebrews, here in this part of the chapter, he presents the truth that we've been talking about. Jesus' blood washes away our sins. He purifies us. He cleans us up. He makes us fit for God's presence. But he goes on and he keeps writing. And in particular, in the second half of chapter 10, he makes it clear that we have a choice about whether we will accept what Jesus did for us or turn our backs on Jesus. And sometimes turning our backs on him is as simple as simply going forward with life, just as it always has been. A couple weeks ago, I first used this this bridge is sort of a, a metaphor or an illustration of, of Hebrews. I was trying to show where we're at in the arc of the, of the book's logic. But I'm going to use it slightly different this time. And we're going to say that Jesus is that bridge. He built it. It's all about him. He built it once and it stands there forever. He built it so that we can cross over into our inheritance, as it's alluded to in chapter 12, our relationship, our living presence with God for all eternity Jesus is that bridge. He made it possible, but he doesn't make you walk across it. He doesn't drag you across the bridge. We have to walk across what he made available for us. I spent a little while last night talking with Emily about some people that we know and we care about, people who matter to us and who many, some of whom will call themselves Christians, but what they, what they seem sometimes to mean by that term is that they they live in a place where Christianity is part of their culture and part of their community, part of their family. But sometimes I'm worried for some of them about whether they have actually started walking across that bridge. Each person is going to ask, am I a part of a Christian community? Or is the Spirit of God actually living within me? Because those aren't the same questions. But I don't want to end on a, on a depressing note. It's a really beautiful passage about how Jesus and Jesus alone makes our relationship with God possible. But we are going to get to the second half of chapter 10 at some point, and there are some challenging words in there. And so I was just was thinking, you know, if I was 
at a Baptist church, this is probably where you'd, you'd do your altar call and say, if anybody wants to come up and be ready, this is the time. But you wouldn't because you're not Baptists either. But, but take some time to think about, are you a disciple of Jesus? I'm not asking about whether your culture or your community is Christian, but are you a disciple of Jesus? So if you haven't, walk across that bridge. It's going to change your life, and Hebrews is going to talk about how it might cost you everything you have. We'll get there. But walk across that bridge. Jesus makes it possible for us to be in God's presence for eternity. But for now, Jesus and only Jesus makes it possible for us to have a relationship with God. He died once for all time to make that possible. He will come again, and this can and should give all true disciples great joy and confidence this morning. been listening to the Tressler Mennonite Sermon from June 4th, 2023. The passage was from Hebrews 9, 23 through 28. Take care.